Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect interview where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, art and society. I'm Alan Rusbridger, the editor of Prospect magazine and today I'm joined by the veteran crime journalist Duncan Campbell to discuss attitudes to the police. Our headline was, Are the Police a Spent Force? And for this really excellent piece of reporting in the most recent issue of Prospect, Duncan spoke to people ranging from chief constables to crime correspondents, from former deputy commissioners to victims of police corruption. And as somebody who's been writing about this for 40 years or more, you've got a long memory and reserve of material to draw on. Listeners should note, by the way, that this interview was recorded before the resignation of Metropolitan Police Commissioner Dame Cressida Dick on Thursday the 10th of February after the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, made it clear that he no longer had confidence in her leadership. So firstly, Duncan, since you wrote your piece, The Scandals Keep On Happening, most recently a report from the Independent Office for Police Conduct, who found a disgraceful culture of misogyny within the Charing Cross branch of the Met, and it detailed incidents of bullying, sexual harassment, homophobia and misogyny, saying they were not isolated incidents or simply the behaviour of a few bad apples. This is just one of several cases that have recently hit the headlines. What do you think these stories reveal about the police? I think those kind of stories could have been written for many, many years. I think what has changed is both the willingness of people to blow whistles and also Social media has made an enormous difference, I think, as politicians have found, as well as police officers. Things that people thought they could get away with uh, and did get away with 20, 30, 40 years ago, they can't get away with now because somebody may uh, find out about it and publicize it. And therefore, we're seeing, I suppose, the police with the lid off. And up until 20 years ago, the lid was more firmly on. When you uh, when when did you start writing about the police? From the sort of early seventies, and at that particular time, which would be around the time that that uh, some of the cases um, I wrote about in, in the article, that the arrests of young black men on the underground uh, were going on. I was working at Time Out at the time, and a young man called Winston True came in. He'd just come out of prison, having been fitted up um, by a bent 
detective with British Transport Police, uh, a detective called Detective Sergeant Ridgewell, who ended up going to prison himself. And at that time, there wasn't an enormous amount of interest in accusing the police of dreadful miscarriages of justice. That kind of came later with the revelations of what had happened with to the Guildford Four, to the Birmingham Six, to many of those related cases, um, people being arrested, Irish people being arrested uh, and accused of being in the IRA. And up until then, and certainly through the 60s, through what I think was probably the most corrupt period um, at Scotland Yard, the 1960s, leading up to the arrival of Robert Mark as the commissioner of the Metropolitan Police. He was significantly brought in from outside, from Leicester, because James Callaghan was concerned that the Metropolitan Police was a little bit of a club, a lot of Masonic influence and so on. He wanted somebody to shake it up. And Mark famously said that his intention was to arrest more criminals than he employed. And he got away got rid of more than 300 officers. Some of them retired early, some were prosecuted, up to about 50 of them were prosecuted. It was an enormous cleanup and it had an enormous effect. And that the corruption within the yard has never been, or within the police in general, has never been as bad as it was then. Different factors have then come into play. Are the police racist? Are the police sexist? Are the police homophobic? And so on. And these are issues which were not really addressed properly in the 70s or 80s or only on the fringes and are now being addressed. So we are very, very conscious of them. And I think all of this has been exacerbated by the last couple of years of COVID when the police were also supposed to be patrolling whether or not people were misbehaving themselves, having parties, uh, ignoring instructions to wear masks and so on. And suddenly the police were lumbered with a whole lot more jobs to do. And I think that has exacerbated things. I think also we live now much more in a blame society where what might previously have been forgiven as peccadilloes or slips or whatever become much, much larger issues. And one leads to another and people are justifiably attacked, justifiably criticized, but there always has to be now a pointing finger. And in a way, some of the easiest people to point at are, are the people required to impose laws that may be unpopular or more laws that may be unfair. And I think that's also what we're seeing. One of the things you draw out in your piece is that the criticism of the police used to come mainly from the left. Uh, and you describe how in recent years, really the criticism is coming from all aspects of the political spectrum. Uh, and in a sense, they can't win because uh, if they're not being uh, homophobic and racist, they're being too woke. Um, exactly. I mean, this has been one of the main criticisms of them, that, that they're now required to be politically correct so some people are understandably accusing parts of the police of being misogynistic or homophobic. And then when they address that, other parts of the media say, oh, they're being ridiculously woke. I mean, I've just been reading a book um, called Tango Juliet Foxtrot, which stands for the jobs. And you can probably guess what the F of Foxtrot stands for. 
indicating that the job is a complete mess at the moment, written by an officer called Ian Donnelly, and who's not very long retired. But in it, he goes into what it feels like to be within the police when all these criticisms are made. And I think one of the points that that I I thought was very useful from what, what he had to say was that by describing a police force as institutionally racist, as the McPherson report following the murder of Stephen Lawrence did, or more recently, institutionally corrupt after the Daniel Morgan inquiry, institutionally homophobic after the court hearings, uh, or institutionally misogynistic after the demonstrations on Clapham Common in the wake of the Sarah Everard killing. That once you describe something as institutional, on the basis of shocking behavior by a number of people involved in it, it has a, a, a really morale sapping effect on everybody. They think whatever we do, um, we will be described, we are institutionally racist. And I think it's, it's now become quite a lazy term. I think it's more helpful to be very specific, to name the people who misbehave. But I think institutional this and institutional that, it's a phrase a bit like fit for purpose or stakeholders or going forward that has slid into the vocabulary of people talking about some things. And I think it's interesting to see in Donnelly's book what an effect he said it had on fellow officers who were not racist and who were suddenly lumbered with belonging to an institution which they felt was was being described unfairly as institutionally. So I think I think one of the, the issues is that there are these specific cases which you quite rightly mention. What rarely get mentioned are the kind of day-to-day stuff uh, that goes on and that the police have to deal with, either in terms of murders or investigations. And I, I think one of the points, again, Donnelly was making, and again I made in the article, is the government, uh, the, uh, the politicians, if you like, have, are not taking the responsibility that they should have done. The, Theresa May, for instance, cut the, the uh, funding to the police enormously, cut the numbers of police by about 20%. And I think that all of that has not been patched up. The other thing is, uh, as anyone in any city will know, more than half the police stations in the country have been closed or sold off in the last 10 years. It's had an enormous effect in terms of neighborhood policing, in terms of relationships and, and so on. And I, I think the difficulty has been that within government, there has not been a kind of uh, desire to coordinate people's attitudes to prison, to the courts, to policing, to violent crime and so on, and say, how do we approach that? And, you know, Tony Blair's famous saying, tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime. Nobody seems to be bothered about the causes of crime very much anymore. And the police, in a way, are left with with the cleaning up job. And I think that's not addressed. Let's just pause there, because the, the, the figures you quote in your piece, um, between 2011 and 2019, a fall in the central grant from government of 29%. Uh, more hundred, more than six hundred police stations closed, uh, and I, I assume. Do you have the figure off the top of your head? The number of uh, police officers who 
uh, were lost during that period. But, yes, but it, was, it, it was around between twenty and thirty thousand. Uh, more than it was twenty thousand and twenty three thousand support officers. These are the people, uh, not uh, not actual police people, but but doing all the kind of clerical, important technical clerical work, all the backup. So you've lost about you lose about fifty thousand, nearly fifty thousand staff, and expect people. Am I, am I right in thinking that a lot of those would have been the more experienced older staff? Exactly, because a lot of them uh, felt the same way as Ian Donnelly, TJF. The jobs, what's happened to the job is 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 very bad, and they go. And one of the things that that uh, Callahan did was. Um, to deal with the corruption at that time was to recognize that the police do a very difficult, dangerous job and they should be rewarded for it. And that they, in the old days, they might have felt that they had an excuse for doing a, 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 a job that could be violent and dangerous and not getting paid very much more than, than any other public servant. He improved people's wages and they got decent pensions. It's now, as you can tell, I mentioned in the in the article, the way that police are being recruited at the moment, and I thought, if you if you're a young person and you think in seven years' time I could be earning forty one thousand and have a degree paid for by the police, that's quite an ent- good job to be in. And in some ways, it still seems to be people are still being recruited. But I I think that that one of one of the issues was that they were at, at that particular time. Uh, not regarded um, as deserving of, of those kind of wages. Now they are. But at the same time, the government have been trying, different governments have been trying to save money, hence the selling off of police stations, hence the selling off of courts, and hence the selling off of prisons. And, and you you sell off the family silver and, and then expect the people who polish it and keep looking after it uh, to carry on doing their job, and it doesn't work. So, so there's now a, a, a drive to recruit new officers. If they want 20,000 new officers by 2023. So one of the questions that's asked most recently after the, the scandals that have been revealed is, is the police force now capable of recruiting the right sort of person? I mean, people have said, uh, there's a case in the news of uh, Christina O'Connor being um, uh, of, of somebody who was found of gross misconduct in, in effectively trying to pick her up while investigating a crime. Uh, and she says, what, why wasn't this person removed? You, you look at the misogyny and the, the, the homophobic language in the texts that have been revealed, and you think, well, how, how on earth did these people ever get recruited? Is, is there a problem recruiting decent officers? Yes, it does seem to be a problem. And, and I mean, the other recent story was from our old station, Stoke Newington, where remarks were made about a woman being searched there, which just happened to be recorded. And, and, and again, you think, why on earth did you go into the police if that's what you think about other people? I think, that, I mean, one of the issues on this, over, over the years, I've, I think I've called 999 on three occasions. And uh, all to do with local things happening when a woman was about to be attacked uh, or somebody was trying to break into a house with a sledgehammer, screams and everything like that. On each occasion, the police came within about five minutes. And I watched these young 
people jumping out of squad cars or vans or something and racing towards the scene. And a, that's a particular kind of person who has that sort of courage, which I don't have. I would be probably sitting in the car watching or getting my notebook out. And I think one has to recognize that the kind of the, um, person that is attracted to, to the job may well be also somebody who likes action and, and, and all of that and, and has that kind of personality. And you get the rough, you get a bit of the rough with the smooth. I mean, the old, um, slogan to try and recruit people to the police in, in I think in the 1970s was dull, it isn't. And, and I think that attracts people. And within a lot of very good people who do join, you get a lot of people who think I'm, I'm going to be a powerful person. I'm going to be able to throw my weight around. And they are the kind of people who one sometimes remembers as prefects at school who, who did like throwing their weight around. And, and you get some people like that, unfortunately. And they're the ones that get the attention uh, rather than the the ones who do it, who are quietly doing a job um, and getting on with it and, and not drawing attention to themselves. I mean, the, the Met has, and of course, we're, we're talking mainly about the Met, but your piece does refer to other police forces as well. But the Met has had huge problems in attracting women to the job. It's a, I think you say it's a 70-30 balance, male to female. And although it's had some success in recruiting uh, officers from uh, Asian backgrounds, it's it's really done lamentably with with black backgrounds. Um, what, can can you explain why it struggled so much on on those particular metrics? Yes, and I think there there remains enormous suspicion within uh, the black community, particularly in London, but also elsewhere. Um, Towards the police, if if you look back, the case the cases that I used to get into the article and the cases I signed off with, if you like, from the article, were entirely to do with people whose lives were frankly ruined purely on the basis of of them being black and young, um, and you you've got that as quite a history. You've got people growing up with that as their background with enormous suspicion with their relatives and friends knowing that that is what had happened and what what was striking to me because i've covered a number of the those cases um of, of young black men arrested uh, on the underground because there's been a, a stack of them now and um and people arrested by that particular officer and his little corrupt cronies on the british transport police in that time and what was remarkable was how many of them said their parents did not believe them. They believed the police. Um, and so for, for that generation who found that they were just being picked up on the basis of their color, um, I think it inevitably uh, has carried on for another generation beyond that. And there is now a very active black police association they are and i spoke to the the president the chairman of it he's very keen that people should join he says join it's a good job it's a great job but he says it's still important to recognize that that there are very very few of them and that there are not enough of them and until there are a lot of those remaining problems will will continue so i think i think it is very much a big issue 
the, the Met is currently led by a gay woman, uh, Cressida Dick. Um, is, is she? I mean, she's she's had a um, she, an, an awful lot of criticism, and, and a lot of very tough things have happened on her watch. Uh, she seems to be struggling in in terms of the criticisms about the kinds of things that we've been talking about. Do you think it's almost too much for for any one individual to come in and do the kinds of reforms that? Perhaps um, uh, were achieved in the in the sixties and seventies. I don't think it's impossible. I think it's difficult. I, I think the difficulty of that particular job is maintaining the support of your troops, um, which may require you to be less than frank and less than decisive when they are coming under attack, because they're. I mean, there's different ways of describing chief constables or, or commissioners. And I remember when when um, John Stevens became the commissioner of the Met, it, the, his sort of allies promoting him, promoted him very much as a copper's copper. And that is very much, uh, I would say, not how Cressida Dick was seen. Um, uh John Stevens was somebody you could go in the pub and have a, a pint with, and he was very hail fellow, well met. There'd been more in, intellectual ones like Ian Blair. There's been uh, Robert Mark, who, who said that, that when he arrived at Scotland Yard, he felt like the, the leper in a, in a, a, a foreign British embassy at a cocktail party. That was how unwelcome he was. So it's a difficult job. You either make yourself unpopular with your ranks and, and clear everything out and and have difficulty in, in persuading them to come along with you, or you appear to be too, maybe too complacent about things that go on within the police and you get attacked from the outside. So it's a very, very delicate balancing job. There have been some, some good ones, but I think the difficulty now is partly through social media that, that any and as I say, any peccadillo is picked up very, very swiftly, and everybody feels that they now uh, are an expert on the police because we have so many documentary programs about the police, so many uh, fictional dramas about the police. Whether it's you know, um, <laughs> line, line of duty or, or or whatever, with you know, line of duty very entertaining, com- completely unrealistic. Uh, Stuff, but uh, but very but entertaining to people, and, and therefore they imagine that there, the that the police may be consist entirely of, of of strange characters with with odd nicknames uh, carrying out uh, murders or or uh, crimes behind the back. But uh, so I I think that's one of the problems that everybody is now uh, an expert on 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 the police. Is is there a problem with political control? I mean. It, um... How, how dependent is Cressida Dick on the support of Priti Patel? Quite dependent on the support of her and on Sadiq Khan. I mean, if you, I know Sadiq Khan has indicated that some of the latest stuff that you mentioned from Clapham throws up more and more, more, and more questions. Um, at the moment, you know, I think the moves to have uh, Cressida Dick resign seem to have 
I, th I think the country can only concentrate on getting one person to resign at a time. But so the heat seems to be off her to, to, to a great extent. Um, but I, 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 I do think that the, you know, that that will remain an issue, you know, that, that one person will always be the, the lightning rod for any particular criticisms of, of a body. And at the moment, Pretty Patel, when when they were considering whether or not Cressida Dick would be allowed to carry on for another two years, the impression that she was giving was that they couldn't find anybody quite ready to take over from her. So she was given this rather lukewarm backing, and I I think that that in itself was was damaging. So I think she will she will know that she's got a couple of years to go, and then no doubt she's keeping a very good diary and. Like Robert Mark went in the office of Constable, his book, there have been some very good books uh, by former commissioners in which they lay things out. And I think in in, uh, in three years' time, we'll be discussing Christopher Dick's memoirs probably on this podcast. And do you think, do you think looking at the pattern of previous Met commissioners, it works best if you have somebody from outside the force who can come in uh, with the necessary independence and and um, energy to to tackle the, the kinds of problems that the force is facing. I think if the, I, I think it requires a, a very specific kind of person and a very strong um, and very honest and very determined uh, person. They have brought in people from outside. David McNee came from Glasgow over there. The Hammer, uh, McNee. I don't think he had a very happy time. He, uh, certainly in his memoirs, he, he makes it clear the difficulties that, that he faced. Um, but I, I think the danger of, um, somebody coming from within the Met, as Christopher Dick did, although she had had a, a, a little bit of time outside and then came back into it, is that you come inevitably with, with, with some of the baggage. But on the other hand, uh, it does take somebody who's had some experience there uh, to know where where the dangers are. You you mentioned the broader the context of the broader uh, criminal justice system and uh, the fact that in in your opinion there's only been one really good um, minister, Rory Stewart, who who's come in and got a grip, but even he wasn't there long. No, he wasn't. What? what how much does that affect, do you think, the, the, the reputation and the, the trust in the police that, that there's a certain amount of chaos in the broader criminal justice system? I think it has an enormous effect. I mean, as I say, the, the, the Ian Donnelly in his book blames uh, uh, Theresa May very much for cutting down the numbers of the police and for, for indicating that she was going to sort things out. And I think that the... the, the what I liked about Rory Stewart when he was prisons minister, he recognised there was a problem. He he didn't kind of try and pretend that that everything was fine and, and the more people you lock up, the better and so on. But I think there has to be a coordinated effort. And I think Priti Patel's concentration on introducing the, um, the, the new bill, which will essentially criminalise some forms of demonstration and protest and essentially criminalise... Um, the, the lifestyles of, of Gypsy Traveller and, and Roma, um, I think is an indication that, that they don't realise that they all have to sit together in the same room and work out what is going wrong. 
Why, why are people coming out of prison and going straight back inside? Why is there no education and training going on in prisons and people are coming back outside? And why were all the youth clubs closed down? Why have we closed down all our courts and, and, um, and police stations and so on? What, is this the right way to be doing it? Do, or or do, do we just uh, patch, it, patch little things up and hope for the best? And I, I think there is no... There hasn't been um, that kind of grown-up thinking. It's all been, I mean, I, I mentioned in the piece, you see a lot of Priti Patel and, uh, and most recently Boris Johnson dressing up in police uniforms. And it, it's, it's embarrassing. And it, it, to officers that I've spoken to, it, it's a joke. You know, these people come along with the photographers and they know that they're only coming along so that the, that the, the mail or the express or the telegraph will have a nice picture of them the following day and it looks like they're doing stuff. They're regarded, they're regarded as a joke by the people that they're doing it with. And I think there's, there's not nearly enough of government understanding, you know, as, um, as I think Rory Stewart was trying to do, partly because he came from a back, he had a, a, a background. He had, he knew what it was like to deal with difficult and dangerous situations, and so he had some kind of understanding. You've got to look at all the different aspects of it, and that is what's missing at the moment. And I think one of the other things which I mentioned briefly in the piece is that the police are dealing now with with very different kinds of crimes. You get very few. Um, I was just in the Old Bailey last last week, and in fact, going along that. This week, um, to to look at, at crimes with which cyber crimes, if you like, which didn't exist a while ago, and the old kind of bank robbers have, have gone, and what you've got is an enormous amount of drug dealing and a bit of sex trafficking. But essentially, it's drugs. A lot of other countries are talking about how do we adapt the laws to work that out, how best to deal with it. Do we have officers arresting people for cannabis? Malta's just legalized it. You've got countries all over the world, all over the states of America and Canada and Portugal and so on, looking at drugs in different ways. I know a lot of officers, some have written very good books about the drugs laws and how they have to they have to be addressed and changed. There's nobody within government and they all you know admit, oh yes, I experimented. Amazingly politicians never actually enjoy drugs, they always just experiment with them. But there's there's no kind of grown-up conversation going on there. And that's one of the key areas that police uh, are having to deal with. And and I think that that's you know typical of what has happened over the last 10 years in terms of, of really Listening to the, to officers, listening to prisoners, listening to probation officers, listening to school teachers, and so on, all all of whom have a role to play in 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 the crimes that we deal with. I mean, the the, the only the one figure that I mean, it's, it's always interesting comparing our criminal justice system with others. We've got an appalling rate for locking people up. We've got this obsession of of punishment and so on, and we jail more people than any other country in Western Europe. The one, the one figure which which I thought was interesting was that, in ter- at least in terms of people being killed by officers, you are uh, 56 times more likely to be killed by an American police officer than you are to be killed by one in 
in Brittany, you have a 0.5 chance per 10 million people of being killed by a police officer. It's five times higher the rate in France, in the Netherlands, eight times higher in France. Um, and so it, you know, at least we have a police force. When you look at so many police forces around the world, in Mexico, in Brazil, um, in India, who are trigger happy and violent and so on, at least that's one thing we should be grateful for, that, that your chances of being um, killed by uh, police officers in this country remains um, admirably low. You, you talk, uh, you've talked about social media, you've talked about police dramas. Uh, you write a bit about the, the, the role of the media in, in, um, in our understanding and perceptions of the police. Um, You've been writing about this subject for for many 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 years, um, and for for, for listeners um, who who haven't been following Duncan, one of the things about your reporting uh, is that everyone spoke to you. If you went to one of your parties, there would be chief constables and and um, great train robbers and, and defence barristers and prosecution barristers and. Uh, so you had it felt as though you had a sort of three hundred and sixty degree grip on the subject because um, yeah, people trusted you to write about this subject. How, how difficult? How different nowadays is it post the Leveson inquiry and the changes that came in for uh, people doing the job that you did to um, to have access to the police and get a good sense of uh, of the circumstances in which they are they operate. I, I think it's more difficult now. I mean, when I was doing it, one was writing for for a newspaper um, rather than for a website. There was less, you know, pressure to come up with instant stuff. Uh, now, uh, if, if you're covering, for instance, a, a, a trial or something, people are encouraged to come out and and tweet on it uh, or file four or five times a day. I was, in, as I say, I was in the old Bailey. A couple of days ago, there were no, um, there was somebody from the BBC. There were no other reporters from any other national, from any national paper there. Uh, those days are gone. What I used to find were one way, I used to like covering trials because one met, as you say, the defence and the prosecution lawyers, and they would say, oh, this is not so interesting. Why don't you do something about that? You would see the detectives and they would, they would be um, able to talk to you uh, over a coffee in in the canteen, and you would meet the 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 defendant sometimes or their relatives, and they would say, "There's more to this than meets the eye." Can I have a drink with you afterwards? And I think the pressures now on um, crime reporters is such that it's very difficult for them to make those sort of relationships because the pressure is on to come up with an, another story and another story and another story. And I think the uh, what what our colleague Nick Davis revealed in, in the hacking case, what it, it led to um, a, a breakdown in relations between the police and, um, uh, and, and particular crime correspondents. And in fact, when I would, would was doing this book we'll all be murdered in our beds on on crime reporting some of the serving at that time some of the serving officers because it came after Levison, some of the serving officers said i'd love to talk but it's 
I can't unless I have somebody from the press office there. And in the old days, I mean, it was possible to go for a, a, a drink or a breakfast or, or something with, with officers. I know it still is, but it used to be always slightly difficult to uh, straddle both worlds because I think, you know, I think if you write about crime, you have to talk about both um you know, professional criminals and other people who go in there. You know, it's otherwise it's like writing about football and never talking to a footballer to find out what it's like. And and so I always sort of encourage people to talk to both sides. I mean, what I learned was, <laughs> I suppose, from from making assumptions, wasn't the the key rule was never assume. I mean, the mistakes I made of thinking this must be the answer to something. Um, and I, I think that I've always found crime reporting the most, in, you know, the most interesting of jobs uh, because you saw life in every kind of way. And I always encourage people. And if people are interested in, in the police, spend a couple of days just going into your local magistrate's court, if you can find it, if it's not been closed and to, turned into a hotel, and just sit there and you will hear officers explaining who they've arrested and why, and quite often it's to do with mental health or heroin or being a refugee. You learn an enormous amount, both about British society and about the problems of, of policing and, and what has gone wrong with the criminal justice system. I mean, the as in the, in the old Bailey, the, the trial I'm, I'm in the middle of, of looking at, um, they they wanted an, the defence counsel wanted an adjournment, and the judge said, "Yes, I'll I'll I'll, I'll look at when the next possible date. Yes, twenty eighth of February, twenty twenty three. So, I do you want your clients to remain in prison for another year because the this is partly COVID, but it's not entirely to do with COVID. And I think until we have People in, in the criminal justice side of, of a government put, putting their big boy and big girl pants on and actually realising that they have to do something apart from dress up and, and go on photo opportunities, do something. Go and talk to Rory Stewart about what job, what, what he thought about the job, but get out and do it rather than pontificating and, and, and playing, you know, playing games with, with something as important as that, people's life and death. The last question, Duncan. Uh, you, you, you spent a long time on this piece. You spoke to a lot of people. You did an awful lot of reading. Did you end up at the end feeling more optimistic about the, the, the future of the police or more pessimistic? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I, I think because things are being acknowledged and addressed i think if if all i would all i would say is you know i would ask people on on both sides of 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 the equation you know to take a deep breath rather than spending so much time pointing fingers planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. And that there are within the police, as I know, lots of admirable and brave people doing very, very difficult jobs. And there are some horrible, unpleasant bullies. And I, I think... I suppose I'm, I'm neither more optimistic nor nor pessimistic, but I, th- I I do think so many things have changed. The the guy that I, that I was, um, you know, one of the senior officers I was talking to, explaining how you know he can he he goes to a, you know a gay pride march or or all those different things. He's he's trying to explain how he understands all that different sections of society's problems with the police and at the same time having to take a lot of brickbats from the right-wing press or from fellow officers for being this new craze to accuse anybody who tries to do anything slightly different they have to become woke and they're you know now that politically correct has gone on and i think woke should be pensioned off in the same way that institutionally this or institutionally that should be pensioned off, and the people who use it as a as a kind of constant excuse for for uh, not not dealing with problems uh, should learn a lesson from that. I couldn't agree more. That's a good note on which to end. Thank you uh, so much, Duncan, for joining us. Thank you all very much for tuning in to hear our discussion. If you enjoyed this podcast, escape the echo chamber and grab a copy of the new Prospect magazine available on newsstands now, or go to subscription.prospectmagazine.co.uk to subscribe. At the moment, you can get three issues for just £5. And if you get this copy, you can read Duncan's wonderful feature, as well as writing from the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, uh, Jeanette Quintison, and the former Australian Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull. Goodbye, stay safe and listen out for the next episode of our podcast next week.